Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right, my friends. Here we go. Welcome back. Thanks for coming. If you've been keeping up with the podcast or been hanging out here in the evening, you know that we have been using a transcribed Dharma talk by Gil Fronsdal. It's in an essay form, but it's been transcribed by a student. And the title was How to Skillfully Evaluate Practice. And so we started in January at the first of the year. Seemed like an appropriate start to evaluate our practice. And so we're moving through that essay still. Um, I found it really fruitful to, to review. I've really enjoyed it. So I wanted to read the next paragraph and then make some comments as I have been doing. So this part of uh, Gill's talk is titled Understanding the Instructions. So in the context of evaluating practice, the focus here is to be evaluating to what degree we think we understand the instructions clearly enough that we're practicing in a regular fashion in a way that is getting us to the goal as we see the goal defined. So I'm just going to read these few paragraphs here, and then I'll make some commentary. You may be strongly motivated, but not know how to do the practice. I meet plenty of meditators who are vague about what they are actually doing in meditation, beyond simply relaxing and trying to have some focus. Some people know the basic instructions, but not much about how to practice, especially with the difficulties that may occur while attempting to act on that instruction. Some people who do mindfulness meditation may know how to be mindful of their breath or their body sensations, but have little understanding about how to be mindful of emotional states or mental states. In insight meditation, there are a whole series of instructions for working with the breath, body, emotions, thoughts, quality of mind, and intentions, as well as for walking meditation and mindful speaking. It is useful to know them all. Do you understand what the relationship is between meditation practice and your daily life? And so there's a quote here that Gil offers in this next little paragraph, and he says, Hopefully for Buddhists, one whole, one's, one's whole life is one's practice. Do you know how to live your daily life so that it supports your meditation? And do you know how to meditate so that it benefits your daily life? The poet Gary Snyder wrote, All of us are apprenticed to the same teacher that the religious institutions originally worked with. Reality. Reality insight says, Master the 24 hours. Do it well without self-pity. It is as hard to get the children herded into the carpool and down the road to the bus as it is to chant sutras in the Buddha hall on a cold morning. One move is not better than the other. Each can be quite boring, and they both have the virtuous quality of repetition. 
Repetition and ritual and their good results come in many forms. Changing the oil filter, wiping noses, going to meetings, picking up around the house, washing dishes. Don't let yourself think these are distracting you from your more serious pursuits. Such a round of chores is not a set of difficulties we hope to escape from so that we may then do our practice, which will put us on the path. It is our path. You might understand the instructions, but not know how to do the practice. For example, if your practice is to follow your breath, do you know how to do it? Is it done with striving, expectation, hesitancy, or laziness? Meditation probably won't unfold well. One might know what specifically to focus on when concentrating on the breath so the mind never settles into concentration. One's attitude towards practice is very important. Is there adequate patience, equanimity, kindness, energy, and discipline? Do you understand the balance between having a goal in practice and at the same time being present without preoccupation with the goal? So that's what Gil has to say about understanding the instructions. And I wanted to highlight a few things that just popped into my head as I read this the first time or the first two or three times this week. One thing that stood out was just the way Gil had said, many meditators are vague about what they are practicing. And if you've heard, I don't know, half dozen or so of my own <laughs> Dharma talks, you know that as a teacher, I often say that it's really important to know the goal and to understand how the practice you're doing is in service of that goal. And then if you can keep that in mind as you practice, your practice will be much more clear your ambition will be much more energized because you'll know clearly, okay, I'm trying to do this and this practice gets me there in a particular way. And I know from my own experience that for years and years, I was practicing all kinds of different techniques and different traditions and lineages. And there were times when I just felt unclear, what exactly am I doing? What's next in my path? And how do I figure that out? How do I sort of get a GPS towards enlightenment and figure out what am I supposed to be practicing? So when Gil says so many meditators are vague about what they are practicing, that totally hits home for me because there's numerous times in my practice where it just feels like I kind of know what I'm doing, but at the same time, I wish I had some more guidance. I wish I had some more direction as to where I was going. Sometimes it feels like, you know, when you're using like, I don't know, Google Maps or something, and it only gets you so close to where you're supposed to be, and then you're kind of looking for the address on the house and trying to figure out, like, you sort of, you sort of know you're in the ballpark, but you're still trying to figure out. You wish you had just a little bit more clarity about where you were going and what it was going to look like when you get there. That's my sense of this idea of vagueness around the practice. And Gil says that it's, it's about understanding instruction. So I was contemplating that in my own experience. And this is what came up for me. I, I had this memory come up that when I was in college in my undergrad, full disclosure, I was such an ass in college back, back in those days. I was not, uh, I wasn't the illuminated being you see before you today. Man, I was so arrogant and so clingy and so much aversion. Of, wow. Yeah. So I ended up getting in an argument with another meditator about a comment she had made. So she made this comment that there was no wrong way to meditate. 
right? She was, her declaration was there is no wrong way to meditate. Anything that you do kind of while you're on the cushion or anything you do in life is basically meditation and there's no wrong way to meditate. Now, the self that was showing up in life back then took offense to that statement because I knew quite clearly and with real certainty that there was a right way to meditate because my way was the right way. So certainly I knew that she was wrong immediately because her way was different than my way. And so just to clarify, I had been practicing, I was just getting into Zen at the time, but I was really strongly practicing transcendental meditation, which was, if those of you don't know, it's mental fabrication, verbal fabrication around a mantra and jhana practice. That's the primary basic practice of transcendental meditation. And she was practicing uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And I was not that familiar with Buddhism at the time. So of course, she was wrong. <laughs> I knew what I was doing because my practice worked and the instructions that I got were working. So there can't be two, two sets of instructions that are right. So I certainly had. So we had this argument, which was really funny because we ended up being friends during college and then we lost touch. And 20 years later, she stumbled upon the Wednesday Wake Up podcast and reached out and was and offered a little Donna and said, I wish you the best. I'm so stoked that you're still a meditator after all these years. And just said, reminded of all the conversations we had 20 years ago about meditation when we were in college. Anyway, the point I'm making, of course, is that what is the right way to practice? So for me, I had the right way. And then what happened was something interesting. A couple years into college, some teachers from the Goenka tradition came to the school and gave this whole presentation on Vipassana practice. And <laughs> again, I had this moment that I clearly remember uh, to the degree my memory is accurate. I was sitting with a friend of mine and we're in the lecture hall and these teachers are talking about body scanning and body-based meditation and body sweeping. And I remember turning to my friend and saying, these people are crazy. This is what kind of meditation is you're sweeping your body? Like that's not meditation practice. And I totally remember thinking, this is wrong. This is not, this is not something I want to be involved in at all. Because <laughs> my practice was so right. It really was right for me. And then a year later, as part of a class in college, I went and did a Goenka retreat, which was my first real introduction to Buddhism. And about three days into the retreat, I had this big insight and I thought, Oh, this is the right way to practice. This is definitely, this is the right way to practice. It's so obvious that this was actually the right, the right way to practice. And clear as day, I could see that I had gone awry somehow in my previous meditation and was just hooked on the Dharma at that point. And so, you know, I'm practicing in the Guinka tradition for quite a few years. And um, I remember that... There got to this point where I started learning about other Buddhist traditions, and so I was kind of branching out. I ended up meeting Robert Beatty, who was my preceptor, right, who I received transmission from. And I met Robert, and Robert, of course, is in the American Buddhist tradition, which is a, a sister tradition to Goenka's, as Ruth Dennison is in this lineage and is a Dharma sister to Goenka. And so I met Robert, and Robert introduced me to kind of American Buddhism proper, which is more of a fusion of several different dharmas in one, along with some other Western stuff. And it's so what my heart needed at the time. And I remember talking with him and thinking, 
oh, this is the right, this is the right way. This is definitely the way I need to be meditating. <laughs> and so again, my practice evolves and now I'm really, oh, I've got it now. Like this is the right way to practice. Like this makes sense. And so year, years later, I get, I get introduced to um, the Thai forest tradition of Buddhism, right? Which I hadn't stumbled across before in the monastics. And suddenly I'm studying the suttas and just totally getting into the Thai for Achan Cha, Achan Samit, the whole thing. And I'm enamored with the monastics and really interested in the suttas. And I have an insight once again, oh, this is the right practice. This is the true teachings of the Dharma. So my whole experience in the Dharma is moving around from practice to practice, waking up to other perspectives of this amazing Buddhism, right? What we call Buddhism. And every step in the way thinking, oh, okay, here's the right, this is the right way. This is the right way to right way to do it. And so one thing I've learned over time when I look at how my practice has evolved is that I have basically stayed within this eightfold path model and I've landed in Theravada Buddhism now as kind of my basic practice. And I can look at my practice and I see all this wisdom and inspiration from these different teachers that I never abandoned. I just kept expanding and deepening my practice as a meditator. And though I have a basic lane that I stay in, I've come to see that my practices have been integrated over the years. And now I have a basic orientation to the Dharma that makes sense, but it's not in the context of right and wrong. It's in the context of, do I understand the instructions of what I'm practicing? And do I understand where I'm going with my practice? Instead of this absolute trying to find the right path, my practice is focused on in this moment, what is skillful, right? It doesn't mean I'm not on a path. I'm certainly on a path and it has certain boundaries. But the main thing is that I understand the instructions of the practice. I know where it's supposed to be going. And I know what it looks like for it to be maturing as I move through my days, as I move through my year, what I'm supposed to be doing, why I'm doing it, and how it serves this larger goal of awakening. And what I've come to see for folks on the path is kind of this, I'm going to use a highway metaphor here. I don't know if this will land for folks, but this is kind of how I, I perceive it now after almost 30 years of practice. I look at these major Buddhist traditions. So let's say you have Zen and you've got uh, Tibetan and Theravada, because those are pretty distinguishable, right? You've got these big traditions of Buddhism. So in my experience, it's like each one of those big traditions is like a major highway, right? It's a major thoroughfare. So like in Portland, Oregon, we've got the 205, <laughs> uh, you know, and the 84 and the five. And so we've got these major highways. And so the traditions are like major highways. And then on each of these major highways, you've got many different lanes, which are these different lineages, which are expressions of these major arteries of Buddhism, right? And so you might be in a particular tradition, which is a highway, but then on that highway, so for me, you know, you've got maybe Thai forest, and then you've got Burmese Buddhism and maybe American Buddhism, but they're all Theravada oriented. They all have a particular orientation. And yet each one of those lanes is quite different from the other. Each one has a particular set of instructions based on the teacher that's teaching in that lane, so to speak. And as we move around in our exploration of Buddhism or the Dharma or meditation, depending, we might move 
from the one highway to another. And then within a highway, we might move lanes on occasion as we explore who we are as meditators and as we look to see what calls to our heart in a particular time in our life. What I found in relationship to what Gil is saying is that it's going to be vague if you don't know that you're on a highway. So first of all, you got to know that you are in fact on a highway. If you don't know you're on a highway, you got to find one. You need to at least find a highway that's going in a particular direction, first of all. And then you need to know within that highway what lane you're in. Because if you're not, if you don't know that you're in a particular lane, you're going to be like cutting people off and driving all over the place, like running off the road and getting in the way of people, particularly getting in the way of yourself. So once you have a sense of like being in a particular tradition and then within a tradition being in a particular lane, in a particular lineage, at that point, the clarity of your practice is going to be based on being in that lane. Do you understand how the goal is defined? And do you know the instructions well for that particular way that you're moving? And if you don't know the instructions well, you're going to be moving all over the place and it's going to feel very unclear. You're not going to feel very focused in your practice. And it's going to be difficult moment to moment to pick what's skillful, right? What's skillful in this moment to that leads to my long-term happiness and well-being? What am I supposed to be doing that we always ask ourselves? I mean, granted, on any day of the week, I can sit on the cushion and think, God, I, did I lose my way here? It's like, what am I supposed to be doing? Can't find my breath. The hindrances are everywhere. So all that being said, when Gil was saying, you know, it's really helpful that we know the instructions. I wanted to ground that for you and just remind you that the instructions are still contextual to the lane that you're in, right? To the goal as you see it and how you're practicing moment to moment. And you know, one of the things that we can ask ourselves if we if we feel like we're unclear about the practice, I've I've put together several questions that I always remind myself of if I get confused about where I'm going. And this keeps me on track most of the time. We always remember that the Dharma is a path, right? It's an eightfold path, and in spite of the tradition or the lineage, there is an endpoint. And so being clear on what you think that endpoint is for yourself, right? What is awakening? What is your understanding of what awakening is? So as soon as you feel discombobulated with a practice or some aspect of the teaching, the first thing is to ask yourself is, okay, what is the, what is the goal here? And how do I understand that goal? Because it's very easy to forget about that. And then the practice suddenly seems to be disconnected. So the practice is always, always, always connected to freedom from suffering. And so you just have to re-ask yourself, okay, for me, how am I defining freedom from suffering? What does that look like? Even if it's just in this moment or in this week or in this month, what does freedom from suffering look like in my marriage or in this relationship or at this job? Ground yourself in the goal of freedom from suffering. Start there and that will anchor you in the Eightfold Path immediately, right? Goal of the path, freedom from suffering, Okay, can I find in this moment with the dukkha that's arising what that freedom would look like for this particular stress? And that will give you some orientation no matter how wandering your mind is or how confused you are about a practice. Ground yourself in dukkha, right? Dukkha will never let you down. Dukkha will never let you down, right? First noble truth, there is suffering. Ground yourself in the end goal of awakening from that suffering. That will give you a sense of orientation. 
The next thing to ask yourself is if you're struggling with a practice or you don't know what practice to do, then that's where the next question comes in is, okay, I'm doing this practice, I'm body scanning and I'm kind of confused. Then you wanna go back to the instructions and ask yourself, how does this particular practice relieve suffering? Like, how does it do it, right? Because it's easy to forget when you're in the middle of a meditation and you're feeling lost to remember like, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? How does being mindful of breathing relieve suffering? How does being mindful of emotions, how does being mindful of the physical body do that? Why am I doing? So you start to ground yourself in a really practical orientation to the practice. One, there's suffering. Okay, this practice that I'm struggling with, let's say you're struggling with loving kindness. Okay, what is it about loving kindness and goodwill that you think relieves your suffering and helps to relieve the suffering of others? Now you have something to ask yourself. Now you have some orientation to what's going on. If you're practicing jhana, for example, it's easy to get lost in the jhanas and forget why the heck you're messing around with pleasurable sense. Like, what are you doing with the breath and turning off this energy and enlivening this energy? What am I doing here? Okay, this is designed to relieve suffering. As I know this practice, how can I orient myself to this practice so it's goal becomes clear, okay, I, this is going to be designed to relieve suffering. So that's the easiest thing. And this is something I still do to this day. If I get lost in my practice, I remind myself, okay, the goal is freedom from suffering. In this moment, the suffering is this. Okay, I either then pick a practice that I think can do that, or if I'm in the middle of doing a practice and I feel confused, I just ask myself, okay, Oh, that's right. How does breathing in and breathing out and knowing if the breath is long or short contribute that in any way whatsoever? That gives you something to hang on to in your practice so you don't feel as vague as Gil says. That vagueness will go away quite quickly if you begin to use discernment to orient yourself in that way. Now, another way to immediately ground yourself if you're feeling vague in your practice is to remember that the Buddha said on his deathbed in particular, that there were many paths to awakening and that as long as a path was cultivating the heart-mind qualities of the seven factors of awakening, then that path was leading to awakening. As long as those heart-mind qualities were being cultivated, you're good to go. And so if you feel vague, you remind yourself, okay, that's right, there's seven factors of awakening. In this practice that I'm doing right now, how does this practice cultivate those? And just think of a way that it cultivates just one of them. Maybe it's joy, maybe it's equanimity, maybe it's some discernment. So if you ever feel lost, you can always remember, okay, we have our seven heart-mind qualities and these were really huge for the Buddha. And he defined his whole orientation to awakening around these heart qualities. And so if we feel lost in a practice, we can ground ourselves once again by simply asking, okay, how does breathing in and knowing something's long or short contribute to some of these factors of awakening? Oh, I might be able to use that to cultivate some equanimity. Or, oh, if I continue sitting here and I just practice in and out breath and I notice when a breath is short and long, that's discernment. Okay, back on track. Here we go. We can just focus on that for a few minutes. Or we get lost sometimes in loving kindness. Loving kindness 
we might say to ourselves, oh, I'm not feeling very loving. I'm not feeling very kind. My judging mind is like judging people, judging this person, that person, this situation. How is that supposed to help? And we can remind ourselves, loving kindness is one of those practices, one that can increase concentration because of the repetition of the mantra of may all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Okay, I'll just use it right now to cultivate some concentration. I don't need to worry about whether I feel loving or unloving. It's also a concentration practice. It can cultivate that enlightenment factor, and now I'm back on track. So granted, you have to ask yourself this evaluative orientation in order to, to know what to do. But the good thing is, is that when, as Gil was saying at the beginning of his essay, part of being a skillful meditator is evaluating, okay, what's going on now? What's going on now? Oh, I'm feeling vague in my practice. Okay, what's the goal? How does this practice get to the goal? And what are the qualities of heart that I need to remember if I get lost? That's my compass, the qualities of the heart. And then the last thing that I also do is remind yourself with any particular practice, are you aware of what it looks like to get results from that particular type of meditation? Now this of course has a sort of prerequisite to being at least mature enough in practice to have practice enough to have a sense of where the practice is going. But oftentimes when we get lost, we forget to ask simple questions like, if I'm breathing in and out, what does it look like to be successful at that? How do I know if I'm, if I'm just breathing in and out, knowing short, knowing long, knowing the whole body, breathing out, knowing whole body, what are we actually looking at to make that successful? What does that look like? And sometimes we just completely forget that the success of any practice is often quite simple, right? We're looking for lightning bolts and laser shows and, you know, trumpets blaring, I guess. I don't know. I don't get trumpets in my practice, but maybe you get trumpets in yours. But sometimes we're looking for this huge thing and we feel lost when actually we are not lost at all. We're exactly right where we need to be in practice. We're just, we've forgotten the simple little successes of, oh look, I've breathed in three times and out three times, and I was aware of all three breaths. Continuity of practice, that's samadhi. Wonderful, keep going. Maybe we see if we can get six breaths, maybe seven breaths, you know? So sometimes we just need to remind ourselves that the success of practice is often just the simplicity of, am I present in this moment? Or is the hindrance arising? Because when we look too far to the grandiose, although we need to be focused on the goal, but if we go too far into the grandiose craving, we easily forget and we get vague again. It gets foggy and unclear. Why am I practicing? Why am I practicing? <laughs> I had a couple days this week that were very vague. And they were very vague uh, for a reason I'll get into in a bit. But it was very vague <laughs> because my attitude towards the practice was kind of like, eh, I'm kind of tired. I don't really want to be doing this. Uh, I know I should be doing it, and I know I'll feel better after I do it, but my attitudinal, my attitudinal orientation was just kind of like, eh, I'm feeling kind of lazy. And so there was a vagueness to it. I was kind of body scanning, kind of breathing, kind of mantra-ing, whatever I was doing. I did some loving kindness, but kind of, I was being lazy with it. <laughs> just kind of like, yeah, yeah, may all beings be well, whatever. I need to get to, I need to go on to something else. I was just feeling very lazy and tired, like right, you know, a couple days, like as the weekend moved into the week. And then on that third day, like I noticed, oh wow, my practice has been kind of 
like vague. And I just reoriented. I reoriented and was like, okay, I'm going to be ardent and alert and mindful. And I'm going to really sit. I'm going to sit and do the work. And that next sit was much better, less vagueness. I was just oriented. The reason I mention that is that Gil says in his in this paragraph this week that even though we're doing the technique and even though we understand the instructions, is our attitude oriented towards practice, right? Is our attitude oriented properly towards practice? And I'm going to read again the, the few words he uses here because he actually cites some attitude that we might evaluate on occasion if we're feeling vague. And so these are the uh, energies that he talks about. Is your practice being done with striving, with expectation, hesitation, or laziness? For me this week, there was a sense of laziness and hesitation. There was this sense of, eh, I kind of want to do this, but I kind of don't. There was definitely an aversive self that was arising. Here's the other set of energies that he talks about. Is there adequate patience, equanimity, kindness, energy, and discipline? Patience, equanimity, kindness. Ah, I love that he put that in there. Energy and discipline. We've talked about this in various ways, and we will continue to talk about this for years to come, about how we show up to sit in the energy and I'll just ground this in something you hear me say quite a bit, which is the reminder in the Satipatthana Sutta of the Buddha's declaration that when we sit, that every meditative moment should have ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Ardency is this desire to do the practice and to do it well, to really be focused. I'm going to ardent. I'm going to do this good. I'm going to give it some serious work. And the alertness, right? It's our commitment to clarity of purpose, right? Sitting down and really being in with that clear purpose of here's the goal. I'm sitting down because I want to be free from suffering. I'm clear about the practice I'm doing and how it serves that goal. And I'm going to generate some real mindfulness. I'm going to be awake and aware and grounded in the present moment. And with those three energies, I'm going to relax into refuge of presence. And that attitude becomes the energy of the present moment. And from that ardency and that alertness and mindfulness, we can then flavor it with some kindness, right? We can flavor it with some self-compassion. We can flavor it with some sense of discipline. What I love about this sentence here that Gil mentions is that he actually has kindness and discipline in the same sentence. Because oftentimes when we think of discipline, we think of overachieving. We think of grasping and clinging. And discipline can simply mean my butt hits the cushion and I'm going to have a good sit. I'm really going to be here. I'm really going to be present. And in that presence, there's joy and kindness. But the discipline is the commitment, right? The ardency to really show up in that moment. And when we find that there's the vagueness when the vagueness comes in, and it comes for all of us, and it will continue, continue to come. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna slay the dragon of vagueness. Just so you, so you know, that is not our goal. You're not gonna like eradicate it somehow. Vagueness is always gonna rise. There's gonna be times where mindfulness is just dull, and you can't see anything in there, and it's just like I don't know what's going on. But at least we can show up with the intention, right? 
to get on track and to see, okay, remember the instructions. And another thing, I really liked how he mentions the instructions, right? Because going back to the argument that I had with my friend, uh, the woman who became my friend actually through college, one of my arguments with her at the time, I can't believe I remember this after all these years. <laughs> one of my arguments at the time was about instructions that I was already knowing quite a few meditators who didn't have a sense of the instructions of their practice. They really didn't know like what step A, what step B, what step C. And my interpretation of that even now as a teacher is that sometimes we think that somehow, I don't know how we get this in our head, but we think somehow instructions or following instructions are counterproductive to meditation. Like Meditation should be free of instruction somehow, because if it's really peaceful and it's really present moment, somehow instructions interfere with, with the practice somehow. And I can kind of see why that is. If we're too attached to the instructions, then by all means, yeah, then we're just driving all over the place, of course. But we have to first know the instructions in order to know how much freedom we can then move within the basic instructions. Like... Again, bringing this back down to um, the image I had of having several different lanes, right, on a highway. So if each lane, what did I say? If each lane is like a lineage, right, and you're in that particular lineage and you're walking a particular path, within the lane, you can move around. You can go to the far right of the lane. You can drive in the center of the lane. You can be far to the left. And as you're driving, hey, if you need to swerve, you can move to the left and move to the right you're still moving forward within the instructions because you still need the creativity and the aliveness, right? And the fun. But that fun that you toss on into your practice, that creativity you use in your practice, still has to be within the bounds of the lane, within the instructions of the path. So it's both bound by discipline and instruction and a bit of rigor, but there's also room for expansiveness, right? For some freedom of choice within your practice. You can move in a 40 minute meditation. You can drive a little bit to the left and engage in some loving kindness. You can then swerve back to the right and do some body scanning. You know, then you can come back and do more loving kindness or you can switch to your mantra. You've got a lot of freedom within your practice. But we just need to remind ourselves that those dots on the road, when we get onto those dots and we start hearing that thumping on the tire, we might want to look at our practice and make sure we're not running off the road because it's very easy to just drive into a ditch in the Dharma. I mean, <laughs> if you practice long enough, eventually you'll be sitting on your cushion, but you'll really be in the ditch looking at the road thinking, how did I get so far off with my practice? How did I get so far like askew with my meditation? So we don't get down on ourselves when things get vague. Uh, we just reorient, right? We just remind ourselves of the instructions and then let go back into the experience. Because once we get, you know, it's like playing music. Anyone who plays music abides by particular structures. There's notes, there's scales, there's chords. To have a song is to have some structure. But then within that song, there's all this room for creativity, right? You can have three singers give interpretations of the same song and it has completely different expression in the world. But it's the same song, right? The song has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? It has some chords, it has some scales, it has a particular key that it's usually in. And if we can lean into the discipline 
of the structure of the song, then we can play it in our own way, right? Then we can sing the song of the soul in our own way because our personality exists in the Dharma. And though we're trying not to be attached to that personhood, there's still a person here that shows up on the cushion. And we want to make sure that it's our personhood that shows up in the way that's meaningful to us. Some of us really like concentration and some of us really love loving kindness. And some of us really love body scanning and others find that boring as heck and don't like to do it. Whatever it is, as long as we understand the instructions in relationship to the goal and we keep that GPS solid, we'll be okay. And we just keep course correcting. When you think, <laughs> I always think of this, whenever I feel like I'm lost on the path and feel like I should know better or I get down on myself and I'm like, oh, I should be further along, whatever that means, I always remind myself that the Buddha had no idea what he was doing when he was practicing. That guy was all over the place. He nearly, he had practically starved himself to death. What kind of, what kind of gross error is that, <laughs> Buddha? <laughs> so, you know, like sometimes where it's like, whoa, I've gone way too far left. And now I'm eating a grain of rice a day trying to find enlightenment. And this isn't, this isn't work, working. So, you know, we're walking in the footsteps of folks who've also gone far left and far right in their practice have not understood the instructions and have gotten themselves into trouble. So we're not off track just because uh, we're feeling vague. So take that to heart that the Buddha did that as well. And so we're just walking in those same, in those same shoes. And that course correcting is part of the path. Skillful effort and skillful means are there because the Buddha knew that once he experienced the full length of the path, he knew that if he didn't put skillful means and skillful effort as part of the path, that we wouldn't see the value in it. We have to understand that we're always course correcting. It's not like you get enlightened and then walk the path. <laughs> the path. You walk the path and keep making mistakes and falling down and getting up and falling down and getting up. That's the path. So the feeling vague and off track and forgetting instructions is being human again, that's basically what it is. You haven't strayed at all. Once you're on it, it's you can't really fall off the Dharma. You're just in it. Now you're just in it and you just pick yourself up and you ask yourself in this moment, what is skillful? So that's what I have to say about that, my friends. Keeping us out of that vagueness. Man, I just, I never get over this vague thing and I never get over, you know, sometimes I feel confident and I'm like, I feel like I'm on my Dharma game and everything's great. And other times I can't seem to find the Dharma to save my life. And I'm like, where is it? Where is it? All I see is hindrances everywhere. It's craving and aversion and grasping and pushing away. And I can't find the, you know, I can't find the tranquility and I get worried. It's like, oh, why is there no, there's not enough tranquility in my life or something like that. So we're all in the same boat. We're just uh, bobbing and weaving together on it. So. Thank you, my friends, for sharing in the Dharma with me and being on this path. And uh, I look forward to much more time being vague and then getting clarity with you all as, uh, as we move forward. Before we close tonight, I want to uh, just remind folks of what's happening with Wednesday Wake Up. I hope you've all have gotten the invitation. So I have to apologize first for the abruptness of the evolution because this happened so quickly. I knew we were going to go back in person and I knew that we needed to find a place to land as a group. And people have been asking me quite a bit this year, like, when are we going to go in person and how are we going to do this? And what's the next evolution of our little community here? Because the community has grown over time. And 
right at the time that we were asking that question, this place opened up at Friends of the Dharma in Portland, Portland Friends of the Dharma. If you haven't been there, it's an amazing community. They are the supporters of the Thai forest tradition and the meditation center is also the host to a Zen community, no rank Zendo, and a, I believe it's a Tibetan community as well uh, that shares that space. And we had, I had spoken to Sakula, who was the head of that organization. Uh, I knew her from before, but we had reached out a while back and said, hey, do you have like a Wednesday by any chance? And I didn't think they would because it's a pretty coveted place to have a space as a meditation group. Um, and they did not have a Wednesday. And uh, what we had told them was, hey, you know, in the future, if something opens up, we think we'd be really compatible with you all and we would love to be able to meditate here. And just the other day, they had a space open up on Thursdays and we went and met with Sakula and they approved our application and said they'd love to have us. And so we are going to try several months there. We've got three months. We're going to try meeting in person for, of course, it's, we're going to change the podcast will still be Wednesday wake up. It's not going to be Thursday wake up, but it'll be something. But we are going to meet over at Portland Friends of the Dharma beginning next week. That is going to be our first live in-person back post-COVID meeting. And we're going to test it out and see if we can do it for a few months and see if we can get some coalescing around growing as a community. You'll, you'll get, a, you'll get a um, flyer on Friday that will just kind of invite you for next week. It's going to be a combination. We're going to like meditate for a half hour. We're going to have a little Dharma talk. And then it's going to be a celebration of community because this is going to be our basically our three-year anniversary. Our technical anniversary is in December, but we celebrate it in February because that's when the podcast celebrates its anniversary. So we're going to be celebrating our three-year anniversary. We are going to be celebrating coming back into person and moving ahead with our little community here. So I hope you can come. Please do. We will be broadcasting live. So we are going to continue to broadcast live on this Zoom link. So we're not going to change the link. So if you can't make it in person or COVID is still an issue, we'll probably invite people or encourage people to wear masks because we have some folks who are immune compromised, but we're still going to be broadcasting, except we will be broadcasting uh, from there on Thursday nights. And in the future, what we hope to do with Wednesdays is have guest teachers who are from out of state teach with us as part of our community on some Wednesday nights. So that'll be like a guest event and doing online classes which will be on Wednesday nights, where the in-person teaching will be on Thursday. So it's all happening very quickly. We don't know where this is all going to land because of uh, this big factor called Anicca. <laughs> I think you've heard of it. It is alive and well right now for Wednesday Wake Up. And uh, I'm just really excited about seeing you all in person. I think the energy of being able to meditate together in a really nice meditation hall and getting folks back together is going to be really just inspiring. So Stay tuned for that. It's happening. We'll figure it out. We'll juggle it and we'll keep moving. The other thing is, is that we do have access to having the place for some Saturdays this year. And so we will go back to doing day-long retreats. So we'll definitely have at least one as we move forward. Once we get our sea legs, we will definitely have a day-long retreat or a half-day retreat uh, at Portland Friends of the Dharma. So, And that will also, our, our key here is to go hybrid. That's what we want to do. We want to keep our online community we want to keep in touch with our podcast community, and we want everyone to still feel connected, even if they're 
um, not around. And then we want to have day-long retreats regularly so people can come in from out of town or just because we need to have day-long retreats, of course, for practice. But we also want people to have an opportunity to be able to come and sit with us and to be a part of the community. So next Thursday from 7 to 8.45 will be our celebration and our first time live, and it will be a dessert potluck. So if you like that, you can come for some dessert and tea. All right, my friends, if you have any questions about that, shoot me an email, give me a call. Otherwise, that flyer will be in your inbox on Friday. Molly's creating it as we speak. <sighs> All right. Thank you so much for coming back. I enjoyed this evening. I'm looking forward to next week. For those who have to go, be safe, be well. Much love to you. And uh, those who can stay, we'll do two or three minutes of some ending loving kindness. Take care, my friends. Take a few intentional breaths. And with a sense of mindfulness and ease, let's really intend to breathe in a way that feels good. Let's evaluate this moment by asking ourselves, what kind of breathing would relax my body Put me at ease and open my heart. Take notice after an evening of meditation, dharma talk, and being in community. How do you feel, and how do you know it? Are there any heart-mind qualities alive in this moment? A sense of equanimity, perhaps? A touch of joy or tranquility. Perhaps some mindfulness, some concentration. Some expansion, contraction of the heart and the mind. We just notice the truth of this and welcome it. We notice if there are any hindrances present. Maybe some sleepiness. We are at the end of the day. Maybe some restlessness or agitation. Some craving, some longing or aversion. We welcome that too. The truth of what is so in this moment. No matter the truth of our experience with this breath, 
we can always wish others well and remind ourselves that our highest aspiration is that all beings be free from suffering and that our practice may liberate our own hearts so we can show up in the world as kinder, gentler, compassionate beings. In tune with this aspiration, in touch with the truth of the body as it is, let us ask ourselves this question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would it be? Allow that blessing to come into being with each breath. Take care, my friends. I will see you next week, either in person or online. Much love to y'all. Take care of yourself. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.